Alright, let's pray before we begin. Alright, Heavenly Father, we ask for your mercies. Uh, Lord, we ask for your presence that you would guide us, teach us, uh, help us to grow in grace, uh, to seek after you. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so we're starting a new Sunday School series on the disciplines of grace. Um, another way to speak of it is the means of grace. And so what are these disciplines of grace? Um, every time I talk to uh, Christians and I say, you know, how are you doing in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, in your Christian walk, uh, I hear so often people say, well, uh, I'm not really growing as a Christian. I don't feel like um, um, I'm really maturing. And then I always ask, the follow-up question is, well, are you, uh, are you appealing to the means of grace? Are you using the disciplines of grace? And by disciplines of grace, I simply mean, you know, ways that God communicates grace to us, ways that God helps us to grow as Christians. So, you know, some of the things are like, for example, reading the Bible, <coughs> uh, prayer, uh, extending mercy. There's, a, there's actually a lot more, and we're going to go through all of them. And people say, no, right? I'm not doing these things. And then I say, well, of course you're not growing. Right? The Christian life isn't something where you sort of lay down in your room and you sort of say, God, you know, do it to me. Go ahead, transform my heart. Um, God does it through these means, through these disciplines. Right? The Christian life isn't passive. Um, in fact, the Bible speaks of the Christian life as this strenuous effort. Right? Things like a toiling, straining effort and sweat. Um, let's read the first passage to see uh, this, this dynamic. Shot that you read Philippians? Yeah. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah. I think for a lot of us, we read this passage, and we're a little shocked, right? Because we say, wait a minute, I thought, you know, salvation is all grace, which means that it's completely passive on our part, and we don't do anything. Um, and that's a very incorrect understanding. You know, it's true, God has grace on us, which means that it's not to our merit, it's not because of any, uh, anything we've done, but it doesn't exclude the fact that to grow as a Christian, it requires effort. It requires, uh, it doesn't mean that you know, you're doing it all by yourself, because notice it says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. So God is the one who's doing it in and through you, but nevertheless, you have to work. You have to put in effort. I think the, the next passage is really great as well. Can I have um, Larry read First Timothy? First Timothy 4, 7-8. Train yourselves for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Yeah, when Paul says, train yourself for godliness, he's thinking of athletic competition. Um, and I think that's an extraordinary metaphor to think of how we grow as a Christian. Uh, I, when I was in high school, I used to run uh, cross-country. And uh, every time we would get ready for uh, a cross-country uh, cross meet, um, we would do all this incredible training, uh, which is partly the reason why I quit. Uh, but it was so much sweat and so much effort, and you put in all of this thing. I mean, I know a lot of you guys are really into sports, right? 
And do you approach sports in a kind of lackadaisical, kind of a relaxed, passive manner? No. You're training, you're beating your body, you're disciplining yourself. And I feel like for so many Christians, we're like that person who sits on the couch, we're watching TV, we're eating potato chips, and we're, you know, this guy who is totally out of shape and fat, and then we show up at the race, and we're like, we're ready to run. <laughs> but that just won't work. And so, on the, one, on the one hand, you know, I want this to be, you know, something that encourages you, but on the other hand, you know, this is kind of like the bad news part, you know, this, I want this also to be a critique, that you cannot be limited. You have to put in effort. You have to uh, be serious about your Christian life if you want to grow. You can't be passive. Okay. Um, <clears throat> any thoughts? Any comments? Any questions on this? So that's the ba- that's the introduction to the whole series. Now we're going to start with uh, reading scripture. Um, but any quick thoughts on the disciplines of grace? What are the disciplines of grace? Okay. Great. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at. How do we read scripture, right? Because that's foundational. So, number two, why read scripture? Um, I think people have this attitude that uh, reading the Bible is really optional for the Christian life, right? Because people have this idea that the Christian life, I understand it's kind of, you know, uh, pretty basic, right? You shouldn't sleep around. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't steal things. I get it. You know, and and when I read the Bible, you know, I see that it says that, and it just says it again and again and again. So, you know, why do I need to read it more and more? And I think that's a deeply flawed understanding of the Bible, because you think of it, that kind of understanding is that the Bible is merely a book of information, right? It's merely about you know finding out what are the rules, and then okay, once I know the rules, then I don't really need to review it all that much, right? But the Bible is more like a vivid experience that you have, right? Um, it's, it's very difficult to explain. The, reading the Bible is more like a relationship that you have. You can almost speak of it as a person, right? You can almost speak of it as um, something that as you read the Bible, it transforms you. It changes you, right? It's not just merely brain knowledge that you're getting, but that it's, it's giving you this worldview. It's giving you this outlook. Um, let's read Colossians 3, which actually Sean preached from last week. Um, where am I? Can I have from Marshall read Colossians 3? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yeah, I put there in the bold, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I think that word dwell is, a, is, is kind of unusual, right? Um, because the word dwell, what does that mean? Can I ask someone quickly, how would you define dwell? It means to like live, right? Live in. Um, and we usually use that word to describe what a person does, right? In fact, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians, um, where it says, you know, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So it has the exact same format, but instead of saying, let the word dwell in you richly, it says something be filled with the Spirit, right? 
And so it's a parallel passage. And Paul's basically saying the same thing. The word is, you can almost speak of it as this person that dwells in you, and as it dwells in you, it completely transforms you. It completely saturates your thinking. It, uh, it, uh, it uh, changes everything about you. Does, does that make sense? Have, do you guys have any questions or any thoughts? Well, like, uh, we separate words from the person, but you really can't do that. It's not like this that the book is sitting here. Is this came from a person, a personal God. Right. And, uh, Nancy and I dated long distance before email was invented. I think it was out there, but nobody had it. But uh, we wrote letters to each other, so literally we were craving, like, checking the mailbox. And when they came, we would read them over and over again, and we still have them in, a, in an album. Really, we're doing that with God. It's, his words aren't separate from his person. We have to see that. Connection. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, reading Christ's words, reading God's words, is how we have a relationship with God, Right? We oftentimes think that, well, the Bible is just so old, it's so hard, it's difficult to read. I can have a relationship with God outside of His words, but that is just simply not true. It simply cannot be. All right, let's read uh, Deuteronomy 6. Tony, can I have you read that? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise... You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Yeah, I put in bold there. The words shall be um, on your hearts. That's ultimately why we read scripture. It's that it enters into our hearts. It's not just merely intellectual. And for it to come into our hearts, notice the strenuous effort that it requires. Right? You shall teach them diligently. You shall talk of them when you're sitting. You shall you shall think about them as you walk. You know, you should think about them as you lie down. It is the absorbing. It should be the absorbing passion of your life. And so here's the bottom line: you cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot grow in grace unless you read the Bible, unless you diligently study the Bible. Um, it just simply cannot be. Uh, any thoughts? And it's not, you know, by this, I hope for this to be a motivation, right? And of course, the, the natural follow-up question is, well, I don't know how to read the Bible. When I read the Bible, it doesn't make any sense to me. And so that's what we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at. Um, any thoughts or any questions or any comments? No? Okay. So let's go on to question number, or point number three, introduction, introduction to hermeneutics. Ah, Fancy new vocabulary word. Uh, let me just quickly ask, who has heard of the word hermeneutics? Show of hands. Who has heard of it? He's not a seminarian. <laughs> who has heard of the word hermeneutics? Okay. Uh, who knows the definition of hermeneutics? I do because it's written. Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, it's, it's the art of interpretation. So hermeneutics is what you do whenever you read a text. Right, um, you have to interpret it, and uh, you can't. You know, there's no such thing as just reading it and then understanding it. There's always this active interpretation. And let me give you a classic example of this. 
um, something as really plain and simple as uh, Leviticus 20, right? Let me read to you, read to you Levit- Leviticus 20. If a man lies with a woman as, I'm sorry, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, right? So this is one of those verses that talk about homosexuality. And so this verse seems to clearly say homosexuality is a sin, right? But uh, there are a lot of people who make the argument that, in fact, uh, this verse doesn't condemn homosexuality. And so this is the argument. Let me give it to you. In the Old Testament, you have a lot of obsolete laws that we no longer obey, that we no longer, it no longer applies to us. For example, things like you're not supposed to mix fabrics, you're not supposed to mix certain crops, um, you're supposed to do all of these different washings and all of these different dietary rules. And these rules, they're not, they no longer apply to us, they're obsolete. And so this idea of you know, a man lying with another man is, a, is an abomination. It's the same kind of law. It's obsolete. It doesn't, it's not really talking about morality. It's not really talking about what is true love. And therefore, the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. So how are we supposed to understand, you know, how are we supposed to decide, you know, if that's true or not? And so that's what hermeneutics is. It's actually very difficult, right? Because, um... There's different arguments, you can see different sides. And so we're going to try to come to understand how it is that we can actually interpret, how it is that we can really understand what the Bible is saying. Any thoughts or questions? Um, I don't want to talk about homosexuality right now. So if you have a question about homosexuality, uh, is it really a sin, is it not? Um, That is for another time. Very interesting, but later. Easy way to remember hermeneutics is it comes from uh, the word Hermes. He was the messenger god. So it's understanding this word is bringing a message. What's the message this word is bringing to us? And it's, I didn't know that. That's a great I just learned that like two weeks ago. Oh, class, so <laughs> that was new to me. Too. Okay. <laughs> I'm in a hermeneutics class right now. so. Oh, I see. I see. It's not very fun, but it's, it's helpful. Yeah, I think um, on the <laughs> one hand... Uh, I'll be real honest. Hermeneutics... <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't want you guys to be so intimidated. Oh my gosh, you know, we're like in seminary. I'm going to give you guys some really basic principles and rules. But it can, it can get very complex. You know, even for Sean and I, we're still learning how to do proper hermeneutics, right? But we're going to stay at a very basic level. Any other thoughts or comments, questions? All right, so turn to the, over to the next page. All right, so here's the basic primer on how do you actually do hermeneutics. It involves two steps. Always it involves these two steps. Um, it involves exegesis and application. How many of you have heard of the word exegesis? Yes? Yes? Who can define exegesis? <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot, Marshall. Oh, are you putting me on the spot? Yeah, I'm going to put you on the spot. I think it means like the context of the passage. Close, close. Um, exegesis actually has kind of a range of meanings, um, but for the purposes of what we're talking about today, this is the definition. Exegesis is discovering the original meaning or we can also speak of the original meaning or the original intent of the author. Okay? So the guy who originally wrote whatever he wrote 
what did he actually mean? What was he trying to convey? That's exegesis. Okay? Application. So what do you guys think application is uh, as a second step? What's the so what? I know what it means. What do I do with it? Yeah. Uh, so application is finding the relevance for us. Finding the, we can also speak of the meaning for us. And uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to focus on uh, exegesis. But I really want to emphasize that you can't just do exegesis you have to do the next step, which is application, which is you have to translate it into the modern context and say, okay, what does that mean for me? You know, how am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with this information that I've just discovered? You know, a lot of people, and I will say this very frankly, a lot of pastors uh, do really great exegesis, and then they're like, ta-da. But you have to do the next step, which is application. You have to translate and figure it out. Um, But a lot of times, in a and, you know, pastors do the opposite thing. They focus on application only, and they never actually prove to you or show you the exegesis. And, and what that means is people could just do whatever they want with the Bible, right? They could just go crazy. Um, but so you have to do exegesis and you have to do application. You have to do both in order to fully get what, in order to uh, derive benefit from the Bible. Uh, let me give you an example passage, okay? I'm going to go over this very quickly uh, to show you how this works. Uh, let's read 1 Corinthians 10. Um, who can I ask? Yvonne, can I ask you to read that Jesus. This will be very, very quick. Uh, uh, what did Paul, who wrote this passage, what did he originally mean? And in order to find, in order to understand what's going on, you have to understand a little bit about the culture of the time. Um, everyone, the whole world, you know, they believe in all these various pagan gods. And then one of the ways that you worship your pagan gods is you bring your animal to sacrifice to the pagan gods. And uh, the only, pretty much the majority source of meat in the ancient world is you would go to the temple where they would sacrifice the animals and then kind of in the back, back door, they would cut up the meat and they would sell it like a butcher, right? So whenever you bought meat, you were buying meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god. And so Paul is addressing that issue for Christians. Is it proper, is it okay for Christians to eat meat that has been sacrificed to a god who isn't the true god? And Paul basically says, uh, verse 26, right? Or verse 25, he says, Eat whatever is sold. Don't let it bother you. And he explains, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, God created all things good. All foods are fine. Go ahead and eat and enjoy because it's of God, right? And he says in verse 27, If one of the, uh, if you go to the home of an unbeliever, 
and he's serving a meat, you know, like let's say he's serving you a filet mignon, you know, don't say, oh no, this was a uh, sacrifice to a pagan god. Don't sweat it, Paul says. Just go ahead, enjoy it, and eat, right? And so that's the, uh, and so that's what Paul's saying. But then he says in verse 28, right? But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. And uh, here we need, you know, you need to do a little bit of uncovering. But basically what Paul is saying is that let's say you go to another person, a Christian's home, or, or let's say you guys are shopping or something with a fellow Christian, and this Christian says, hey, that meat has been sacrificed to a pagan god. Then don't eat that meat. Why? Because the person that you're with thinks that it's a sin to eat that meat. Right? Even though you know all everything is of the Lord's, the fullness of God you should enjoy, but if your friend thinks it's a sin, don't eat that meat. Does that make sense? Right? He says, uh, Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So he's, his conscience is bothered, so for his sake, don't eat the meat. Alright? So that's the exegesis. Now, if we were to stop right there and say, Okay, that's the meaning of the passage. What does, it, uh, does it have any application or meaning for us? No. Are there any pagan temples? No. Right? Uh, well, there are, but they don't, they don't sell meat in the back door, right? So it has zero application for us then, right? Absolutely not. The, the point of, uh, of uh, hermeneutics is you have to figure out what's the application. Uh, and, and what that means is you have, to under, you have to figure out what the modern equivalent is. Okay? So what's the modern equivalent to meat sacrificed to pagan idols today? Is there a clear-cut answer? I would say no. Right? It requires you to think through your exegesis and then think through your modern cultural context. And the modern equivalent will mean different things in different cultures. It might mean different things in, in China. It might mean different things in India. It might mean different things here in America. So what's a modern equivalent? How about alcohol, maybe, right? Uh, all things are good, but if some people feel like it's a sin, then you shouldn't drink with your Christian friends. It's, it's going to cause that person to stumble. What about secular music? What about going to a party? You know, so what, it gets tricky, right? Like, what, what is the modern equivalent? How does that apply to us? How do we actually exercise this? Um, any thoughts, any questions? I just wanted to show you that it involves these two steps. Exegesis, which by itself is difficult. I just gave it to you really quickly, but if you really want to do it, you, you, know, you have to labor and think through it. Um, and you have to understand that there's something called taking temples and meat and, and everything. And then there's something called application. Any comments or thoughts? Or well, Paul seems to be saying, you're free, don't sweat it. But then he says, but you're not free if it harms your brother. So... It shows a, a limited freedom for Christians. And then Absolutely. you wrestle about where am I free, where am I Exactly, right? The application is where exactly are you limited? And in what way? How do you do it, right? So does that mean, you know, if you're sitting in the car and your Christian friend says, oh, you listen to Lady Gaga? And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> you switch to the Christian radio station. Is that what it means, right? Like, how do you exactly do it, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's a challenge, yeah. Any other thoughts?
any other comments? I'm not saying you can't listen to Lady Gaga. Okay, we're not we're not we're not talking about the modern equivalent for now. Um, that will be fun, more fun later. Um, any other thoughts or comments? All right, good. So, so that's how you do hermeneutics. Um, I just summarized Paul's classes. She you. does wear meat, though. So. She wears meat. She wears meat. <laughs> yeah, so that's a Probably sacrifice the painting guy, yeah, right? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Don't eat her meat. Yeah. Okay, uh, number five. Why is exegesis so hard? And it is, by the way. It's explore. Uh, why? Why is exegesis so hard? And, it, and it's, it's, it's extraordinary hard. And the answer is because of the historical gap. Um, a lot of times we forget, or maybe we don't forget, it's obvious to us all the time, but that there's an enormous amount of time separating the Bible, when the Bible is written in, in us, right? So let's say this is the present, 2010. Uh, it looks like a sci-fi date, right? 2010. And uh, let's say this is creation. Okay. When was the Bible written? Let's talk about the New Testament. Can anyone throw out some dates uh, which they think, or maybe they know, maybe educated guests, when was the New Testament or roughly around written? The New Testament. So this is Matthew through Revelation. Around 120. Okay, that's some people say that. So, um... Depend- not educated people. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. no. There, there's a difference of opinions, right? I would think 120 is probably the, the edge states. The, the, uh, uh, as late as it go. I would say, this is my own opinion, uh, the first book was probably Galatians, probably written around 8050. Uh, and then the last book, Revelation, was probably, in my opinion, written around 8090. Okay? So what does that mean? 1,900 years separation, right? I mean, think about trying to read Shakespeare. When was Shakespeare written? Actually, when was it written? Like 500 years ago? Yeah, 500 years ago, right? When I read Shakespeare, man, I don't understand what he's talking about, right? <laughs> and that's just 500 years ago, and it's written in English. Think about um, trying to understand uh, the Constitution, right? That's just, what, 200 years ago. And there's extraordinary difficulty. But we're talking about a culture that's completely alien. I mean, it's so different, the ancient Mediterranean world, that it's like Mars, you know, in so many ways. Um, and so we have this huge cultural gap. Now, when was the Old Testament written? Uh, that's so much and complicated. So let's just say the Pentateuch, which is the books of Moses, right? The five books of Moses. Uh, which is Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. When do you guys think, uh, assuming Moses wrote it, it was written? Let's throw out a date. Can you guess it? So obviously in the BC era. Ramesses, well, it depends on who you thought the Pharaoh was, right? There's different opinions on that, but... Depending on the Pharaoh, it only changes the date around 200 years. Any, any guesses? Throw out some random numbers. Ben, any thoughts? Throw out a big number. Huh? 5,000? That's pretty good. That's a long time ago. 1,000? That's pretty close. So, uh, there are two rough dates, but it's probably 1400 BC 
or 1600 BC, depending on who you're deciding who the pharaoh is, right? So what is that? Okay, we're in 2000. This is 1,500 years before Christ. What does that make the Pentateuch? 3,500 years ago. And if you look at Genesis, right? Genesis is talking about a period perhaps a thousand years or more before when Moses wrote it, right? By the way, when do you guys think creation happened? Date? Okay, good. I hope you guys say we don't know because we don't know. Anyone who says they know the date is, you should run from them. <laughs> um, but we're talking about 3,500 years ago. That's an extraordinary time difference. And let me just give you an example. A lot of times uh, in the Old Testament, we've talked about this, it speaks about women being barren, right? But it never like, goes in, into it in detail because it assumes immediately you know exactly what that means when a woman is barren. But in our own modern culture, when a woman is barren, we say, okay, you know, maybe you know, it's tragic for, women, for people who want to have children, but it isn't, we don't understand the full, the absolute devastation of what it means to be barren. If you're a woman and you're barren, it means you're nobody. It means you're worthless in that society. And that's critical for us to understand if we're to understand the meaning, the context of the passage. And the only way we can know that is if we study. And so that gets me to my next point. How do we overcome the historical gap, right? How do we bridge this? How do we, how do we bridge this distance? And the only way is we have to study, right? So that's answer, uh, how do we bridge the gap is we study. A lot of times we think that, you know, reading the Bible should be really easy, like reading a nice devotional book, or even like reading, you know, People magazine. Um, but the Bible is no different than any other book. It requires thought. It requires study. I mean, think about, for those of you who are students, how much time and effort you spend studying chemistry, U.S. history. You put in so much effort. But very rarely do Christians put in that kind of effort and that kind of, of discipline to actually reading the Bible. Um, which is a tragedy, because the Bible... It's not a magical book where, you know, you read it and somehow, you know, you get the meaning. You have to think about the historical context. You have to think about, uh, you have to try to do the hard work of finding out the meaning. Um, and oftentimes that means that you have to read outside sources. Oftentimes that means that you have to use extra, uh, you know, you have to use uh, extra help, other books to help you to understand. And I know that for a lot of you, and I've spoken to a lot of you, a lot of you do not like to read, right? I know, you know, you don't read, you like maybe magazines, you like uh, to do sports. And so you're wondering, you know, do I really have to study? Can I just get by listening to sermons? Can I just get by, you know, you know doing other things? No, you can't. You have to study, you have to read the Bible if you want to know what the Bible is saying, if you want to grow. You know, it's really, truly, there's, there's no other way. Um, any other thoughts or any comments? Um, I hope I haven't made you feel too depressed. Um, any thoughts or comments? Okay, uh, let's turn to point six because we're running out of time very quickly. Uh, last thing, 
A final word, the importance of prayer, the importance of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Um, reading the Bible, as we've said numerous times, is not a purely intellectual exercise. Uh, but in order for us to truly understand, for it not to be merely something that we just understand with our minds, but that we grasp with our hearts, the Holy Spirit has to impact our, our hearts. And so can I have, um, can I have Ma- uh, Marianne read uh, 1 Corinthians very quickly? The only way we can really understand and really have the Bible impact us is if the Holy Spirit teaches us, and therefore we need to pray. So the, the, the first thing we need to do when we read the Bible is we need to read it with prayer, with humble dependence on the Holy Spirit. Actually, next week we're gonna preach, I'm going to preach on the Holy Spirit, so we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but uh, I just wanted to get this point across. Uh, in closing, let me give you guys some book recommendations. Um, so if you want to, if you want to uh, read more about how do you actually read the Bible, let me give you three quick book recommendations. Uh, the easiest book of these book recommendations is a book by R.C. Sproul called Knowing Scripture. This is actually an old copy. There's a, there's a newer cover version of it. Uh, very easy. I would say junior high level. Okay. So great, great basic introduction. Another one, uh, which is a little bit more medium level, maybe... Uh, junior, senior level in high school reading is a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by uh, Fee and Stewart. This is by far, hands down, the best book, basic book on hermeneutics out there. And really, I'm just cribbing off this book for the next several classes. It is really ex- excellent, really good. Uh, when you read this, like recently uh, to review for this class, I was reading through this book and I was like, wow, this is so great, you know? And I've already gone through so many years of seminary. Um, so this is really good. Let me recommend it. And final recommendation, um, if you want a great study Bible that gives you great notes, that helps you explain the cultural context, historical context, uh, the ESV Study Bible, hands down, the best study Bible out there. I mean... I remember when they first published this thing, I was like, wow, this is like so amazing, you know? And it's so beautiful because the maps and everything, they're in color. Um, I remember when I was in college and high school, like, you don't understand how blessed you guys are. Like, this kind of study Bible, like, it didn't exist, right? There's, there's nothing even came close. Free computer programs. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you buy it, you, get, you have access to all the online stuff. I mean, this is hands down. You don't understand how precious <laughs> um, This is very expensive, unfortunately. It's $35 on Amazon. Um, they have so an app, too. Huh? They have an iPhone app, too. Oh, the iPhone app? You have an iPhone? Um, $35 is a lot of money, I know. I know. But it is a great investment. I mean, really. This is so helpful and so good um, it, it will really help you to understand uh, any thoughts or any comments so those are my book recommendations any concerns so what are we going to do for the next two weeks next week we're going to look at how do we read historical narratives and then the week after that we're going to look at how do you read epistles um, so we're just looking at two genres we may circle back around and look at other genres like poetry prophecy. That's basically the outline.
Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would give us the motivation and you would give us uh, the desire to know you and that we would be willing to put in the sweat, the time, and the effort to read the Bible and to really read it by studying it, uh, by, by researching, by uh, looking up words, by really pouring over the text as if we were in an athletic competition. Oh Lord, I pray that you would not make us lazy, but you would make us uh, desire you with all of our being. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.